Hey, welcome to the Afikta podcast. Today's episode is going to feature a community presentation given by Afikta team member Mehdi Blaine. The title of the talk is Who Were the Moors? Hope you enjoy the presentation. This was filmed on Zoom on June 20, 2020. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Um, my name is Mikey Mahenna. I'm really happy that everyone's on the call. Everyone, welcome, uh, Mehdi, to the uh, presentations. Uh, so, hi, everyone. Uh, like uh, Mikey said, my name is Mehdi. Uh, and in terms of my sort of fascination with this topic, it, it sort of just came from a question, a very simple question I had, uh, where, I mean, if you do a simple Google search on, if you do say like the Moors, uh, you'll get pictures like, uh, like this that I've shown on this first title slide. And you know, you'll have several, several groups of people talking about the Moors as if there's, you know, they have some sort of affinity to them. And it, it really just, started as a trying to demystify who this like vague group of people are and what exactly this sort of term meant uh and like a bigger question like behind this is like well if uh the if these are what like the moors supposedly look like and the moors are said to be the you know the north africans like maghrebi north africans are like the descendants of these people, quote unquote, then why don't they look like them for the, like the majority of them look like them? And uh, the question's a lot more, uh, not like a lot more gray, not black and white than that, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to figure things out. Uh, so in terms of an outline, uh, that's a picture of a black more fish. Uh, I really, there's, I don't know why they named it that. I just thought it was funny and it looked weird. But uh, I'm going to start with some contemporary examples of where we see the figure of the Moor in uh, popular culture in the West. And then I'm going to do a deep dive in the entomology of the, the word, the history of Muslim conquest in Spain, uh, depictions of the Moors, and sort of the implications of this and trying to like really get at the demystifying who this figure is uh, of the Moor and what it actually meant to different groups of people. Uh, so in terms of, uh, you know, in a regular presentation, I would ask everyone, uh, maybe you guys can like type in the chat, but what is the first thing uh, you think of when you uh, hear the word more? Because uh, I, I show this beans and rice dish because uh, in Cuba, uh, I don't know if anyone's familiar, but this dish would be called Moros y Cristianos, uh, Christians and Moors. And it's very, I'm sure you all are, uh, would know that who the Christians are in this dish and who the Moors are. So the white rice are the Christians, the black beans are the Moors. So they're obviously sort of uh, uh, implicit racialized sort of characterizations of these uh, two groups of people, right? And uh, going on along the same name of Moros y Cristianos or Cristianos y Moros, uh, we have the annual celebration in Spain. Uh, it is most commonly, uh, you know, the biggest is in Valencia, but I'm sure there are like press celebrations uh, celebrated throughout 
uh, Spain, mainly in the south, but uh, it, it's a parade, it's a huge celebration where uh, you have Spaniards who will dress up as Christians and Moors. And you know, while the sort of regalia for dressing up as Christian uh, is pretty uniform, you know, compromising of armor, white robes draped in red and like red crosses, uh, you know, when it comes to the Moors, the Spaniards get a bit more creative. Uh, and you see these two examples right here, where you have uh, what looks like to be somewhat inspired by uh, like what I think the average person would associate with like an Ottoman Janissary, uh, with a bunch of people like in uh, this sort of military garb, uh, weapons, all, all having beards. Uh, I think that's uh, pretty notable which you'll see later. And then we juxtapose it with this image on the bottom, which is uh, one, blackface, uh, and two, uh, characteristic of cultures that we would more you know, associate with you know, central to Southern Africa. Uh, and so the big question is, how can these two portrayals exist at either the same event, or how can these two portrayals uh, you know, represent the figure of the Moor? How can this person, uh, this figure exist in the, like, these varying representations that seem to have nothing to do with one another? And then we get to, uh, you know, the Netherlands and uh, the infamous holiday, uh, well, holiday tradition of Zwart Piet, Black Pete, who is a blackface character that has gotten, uh, you know, a lot of heat throughout the years. And I mean, despite the heat, you still have uh, people who are very adamant in, uh, you know, wanting to portray this figure and, you know, you know, making vague gestures to like, you know, this is our culture, this is our traditions, this is what we do. Uh, even though, I mean, if you look at the history, this was, uh, this figure was actually uh, created in 1850 by a Dutch primary school teacher who, uh, you know, was publishing a children's book who introduced this character as like Santa's servant. And if you see on the picture of the right, you can see uh, how this character is supposed to look in terms of his dress. We can call it like Eastern Oriental dress. And uh, even in the book, it talks about this character coming from Spain. Uh, and to this day, you have uh, Dutch folks uh, dressing up as this character. And while there's some more progressive ones who instead of doing like straight on blackface, they'll do like, you know, soot to like represent uh, chimney ash going down a chimney. Uh, it's, it's still widely practiced. And then uh, the last uh, contemporary example would be the, the Moorish heads of Sicily. And, you know, uh, in a larger sort of note, uh, black Moor jewelry in general. You'll see uh, a lot of jewelry. I mean, like I remember uh, some English royalty, she got a lot of heat because she wore like a brooch that was of a blackface character. Uh, and it was funny because she was like in the car with Meghan Merkle. But, uh, uh, you know, as the story goes with the, these Moorish heads of Sicily, uh, a young lady loved cultivating flowers on her balcony. One day a Moor passed below and became infatuated with her, declaring his undying love so beautifully that she in turn fell in love with him. The story took a sinister twist when she found out he was married with children. Appalled at the deception and insult to her virtue, she cut his head off. Now what to do with it? She decided to make it a perfect plant pot. It's a very dark story. But I, I mean, as you can see in this photo, uh, the Moors are depicted not in a like singular sort of racial character. 
and that uh, there, there's a wide variety of depictions of what exactly a more uh, looked like in, in this certain instance. So before I, I go on, obviously uh, I wanna do the presenter's promise. Uh, you know, as Mikey said, I'm not an expert on this. I, I gave this presentation two years ago. So I, uh, I know a lot more <laughs> about this than I did when I initially gave this presentation. Uh, but you know, it's definitely something that I'm, you know, keep learning about and keep trying to sort of uh, delve into. But I'm not trying to like have an agenda here other than, you know, make you think uh, of the more as like this sort of emblematic figure of a lot of different discourses rather than just like this vague group of people that occupied, like, you know, that invaded uh, the Iberian Peninsula. So in terms of the origins of this word, uh, it stems from the Latin word Maori, Mori, I don't know how to pronounce that, but uh, the word itself meant dark and it referred to the skin and hair of the inhabitants of what the Romans called Mauritania. Uh, and Mauritania is not uh, being uh, referred to as the modern state of Mauritania, but rather what is now present day like Northern Morocco and Algeria. And uh, you know, it, from the very beginning, this sort of it, it, this term was a geographical designation. It wasn't necessarily talking about a shared set of cultural values, practices, uh, like racial character. Rather, it was really just talking about this group of people from this particular geography, and this would be the way people would generally think about it until Seven Eleven, when. Uh, people uh, when, you know, like uh, Muslim conquest started in the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, but I mean, a big thing is sort of, this is uh, a f like, it's, it's trying to make this sort of otherness, this sort of figure not native to Europe, but rather to uh, having this like inner sort of African essence. And this sort of essential sort of quality of the Moor is going to transform, but also inform larger conceptions of how we think of race and racialization. So uh, in terms of history, so we have, uh, you know, the conquest that started in 711, uh, often attributed to be led by uh, Tarek bin Zayed, uh, he was Amazigh general. Uh, and, you know, it was, you know, several years before, you know, people uh, were uh, like the Iberian Peninsula was under Muslim rule. But it's interesting because if you read, uh, there's, there's this one chronicle, the Moza Arabic Chronicle of 754, which is actually not that long uh, after the initial invasion. It was written by a Christian living in Andalus. Uh, and it's one of the earliest accounts of the conquest of 711. And it's interesting in that it describes the invading force of Muslims without any sort of racial animus, but it just describes them as invading Arabs and Moors. So this gives sort of the sense that uh, at least at the time to this particular Iberian Christian, there was a conception that Moors were in fact different from Arabs. Uh, not sh there's not really a, like a background on how this difference was known, whether you know, people were just in tune with linguistic differences or just knew you know, these sort of like uh, vague uh, 
ethnic sort of demarcations. But they knew that like, yes, while all of them seemed to be Muslim, there was some sort of difference and that the Moors had this African essence that Arabs at this point didn't. Uh, and I mean, it changes though. You know, by the 12th and uh, 13th century, you have, uh, you know, talking about the Abdurrahman III, he was a 10th century Umayyad uh, Caliph. Uh, you have this uh, epic tale uh, in the 13th century by uh, this Spaniard who, if I could read it, <laughs> he's talking about, again, the, the events of 711, the downfall of Spain. He says, the Moors of the host wore silks and colorful cloths, which they had taken as booty. Their horses' reins were like fire. Their faces were pitches black. Their handsomest among them was black as a cooking pot, and their eyes blazed like fire. Their horses swift as leopards, their horsemen more cruel and hurtful than the wolf that comes at the night of the flock of sheep. The vile African people who were uh, not to boast of their strength nor their goodness. They do not take God as a guide, but the stars. They have made them, the stars, a new creator. There are, among, there are others among them who know many charms and can create very evil simulations in, with their spells. The devil teaches them how to stir up the clouds and winds. And I mean, this is a very different sort of characterization of uh, this group of people. And I mean, this is obviously being written a lot later uh, than the initial thing I read. And, uh, you know, it's themes of racial dehumanization, religious demonization of, you know, they converge in this text where, uh, you know, it underscores not only like the Muslims' religious and cultural otherness, but also more particularly their foreign racialized African origins, uh, you know, and they're, mis they're, they're misplaced and thus they have, they, you know, they have a temporary presence as outsiders, supposedly without roots in the Iberian Peninsula and, you know, coming from surely a darker, sort of more uh, like sinister uh, land, right? Uh, and if I could, I'm just trying to find something else, uh, you know, and this is, this is a trend that you'll see in a lot of proto, what we could call proto-nationalist Iberian Christian writings that would uh, end up fueling the eventual Reconquista in the 15th century. Uh, and I mean, there's another story, uh, la, it's La Chanson de, de Roland. It was an epic that was, it was actually talking about a, a battle, <laughs> uh, the battle of uh, uh, Roncevaux, I think, which was a rather unimportant skirmish between Charlemagne and uh, some Basque forces, Basque, not Muslims, but it decides to retell this story and give a revision and talk about this epic battle between Christians and Muslims. Uh, you know, at one point, the, like, the author talks about this and connects this to the Greek defense of Thermopylae against the Persians of the fifth century. And, you know, it, it, it goes to show that, like, this conveys that the Moors are the most recent iteration of outsiders to supposedly like a threatening uh, Western European civilization, Christendom, if you will. Uh, and it's interesting because I mean, at this point, Christ Persians are not Muslim, <laughs> like with uh, like in the, their battles with the, the Greeks, they're, they're mostly Zoroastrian at this point. 
Um, so, I mean, it gives the sense that Islam is not even within the bounds of like the Abrahamic faith. It is something uh, much more sinister, much more uh, like uh, heretical, which we'll see become a theme. And in terms of a short interlude, I just wanted to sort of a play on the diversity of, in Andalusian society, uh, Andalusian society, I mean, with this uh, very famous song, uh, which I'm sure like most Arabs know, like Arabic speakers know about this song, but it's important to know that this song actually exists in Spanish and Hebrew. Uh, and they're all considered legitimate forms of this song, while the Arab, like, Arabic version is probably the most popular. Uh, this shows that, you know, there was a history of collaboration. Like we always talk about Al-Andalus as like the, the golden age of Islam. And that's not to say that there wasn't, you know, knowledge production, advancement. Uh, there was, but we also have to contend with the fact that there was great violence. A lot of people suffered uh, under Muslim rule at certain points. And then eventually Muslims and Jews would suffer <laughs> under uh, eventual Christian uh, conquests. And then another sort of interlude uh, is this uh, interplay between the figure of the Moor and the figure of the Saracen. And this is sort of outside the bounds of uh, my topic because I didn't really do that much reading on like this figure of the Saracen. But it's also a common term that you'll see. Uh, I mean, in the same uh, La Chanson de Roland, uh, it talks about the general Abyssin in the forefront rides a Saracen. He is as black as molten pitch. Uh, so it's at points, the, the, the Saracen can be used interchangeably with the Moor, but more often than not, uh, you know, if you played like Age of Empires 2 on the computer, you know that there was the civilization of the Saracens uh, led by Salah al-Din al-Ayubi. Uh, and they were this group that was more, uh, had the, the, the word had more association with the Arab East, with the Levant, with Anatolia, than it had with North Africa. Uh, and if anyone knows the actual like entomology of the word Saracen, uh, a lot of people say it actually comes from the Arabic word like Sarakin, like Saraka, to steal, the stealers, the invaders, the like the plunderers, if you will. Um, but if anyone has anything to share about that, I would really be interested to know. But I just sort of wanted to have that uh, inter space. But uh, now we're going to go to some depictions. And in my previous, like the first time I gave this presentation, I tried to make this narrative of like, oh, you know, this is how uh, it had been flowed throughout the ages and trying to make it just digestible. But this time around, I just want to show these pictures, uh, talk about what they uh, might have meant for the, that particular group. Uh, and just talk about like, you know, how different groups of people uh, saw the Moors, because it's like, it's one thing to ask, like, who were the Moors? But it's more important to ask, like, who were the Moors to which group of people? Uh, so we have the first uh, depiction, which is actually coming out of Basra in Iraq. And uh, it's by a cleric. Uh, his name is al Harira, And, uh, you know, he has a long name, Abu Muhammad al-Qasim bin Ali. Yeah, but uh, he was a government cleric uh, in the Seljuk Turkic Empire. And he was commissioned to write this sort of epic poem about the Moorish conquests of Spain. And if you see this picture below, it is exactly that. It is, uh, uh, you know, a military campaign of Moors and like detailing their victory in Spain. 
And if you look at them, I mean, it's very obvious that like this deviates from every other depiction of the Moors because they look uh, in what most people would say is like a Central Asian sort of Turkic look, uh, which gives the impression that it wasn't really about, you know, trying to like accurately describe this group of people. But no, it was actually linking the Seljuk Empire to a larger narrative of Islamic conquest and uh like power vis-a-vis -vis Christendom. Uh, so making them in the image of the Seljuk Empire might have been, uh, you know, a way to sort of convey that. Uh, and then we have one of the oldest, I, I think it is the oldest manuscript from Al-Andalus that includes the depictions. Uh, and it's of a 13th century uh, Arabic love story of, you know, these two people, uh, uh, and uh, it's interesting because the depiction here is, uh, you know, they're very like sort of vague in terms of what, where they're from. You can really only talk, like sort of discern their Muslimness, if we want to even call it that, from like the stuff they're wearing. Uh, and this sort of things, like the stuff they're wearing would become important in later uh, uh, depictions on how to demarcate Moors from Christians. And that brings us to uh, the Cantigas de Santa Maria. And it is an epic of 420 poems that were also have musical notation, so it was meant to be sung. And this was done in the 13th century. And as you can see, this comes to be probably one of the most, I would, I would say, accurate depiction of Moors as a cosmopolitan group of people. So, I mean, if you can see, you have uh, what you, like what we would say are like white Moors, but they have beards, they have turbans. There's like specific signifiers that they do make to make them like make the, you know, the looker know like, no, these are Muslims, but you also have what we see as, you know, uh, black Africans in this group, this campaigns, uh, like just brown skinned people. Uh, and, you know, I have a couple more of these, but, you know, it just, it just shows that like, at least in the 13th century to this particular author, there wasn't a sense of like, uh, totally associating Muslimness, Moorishness to a particular phenotypical, uh, like phenotypical features. Uh, but I mean, maybe like maybe in terms of skin color but then we see these beards we see these turbans we see these sort of different signifiers and sort of showing how people like envisioned a human like you know human difference uh and then there's more here uh so you see uh you know different uh there's ones of uh the one on the top middle is you know of a moor and a christian playing checkers and or chess chess you know there's a great articular presentation about chess uh, if you want to check that out. But I mean, this shows like with the, they're playing lutes. I don't know if they're ouds or lutes or some sort of cousin or inter, something inter-between, but uh, shows collaboration between uh, Muslims and Christians. Uh, but then we get to uh, 15th century depictions. And on the left, we have uh, Abu Abdullah Muhammad, uh, the 12th, and the famous Leo Africanus who uh, is a, was an Amazigh, 
sort of scholar who was working within the courts of uh, the Catholic Church. And he became one of the sort of the foremost sort of intermediaries between Europe and the African sort of world where he did a lot of ethnographic studies to uh, uh, and like compilations to talk about Af African peoples and their culture and differences and stuff. But as you can see here, uh, I mean, there's, they're, they're white, <laughs> like they're like very light skinned. But it's important to note that, uh, again, these are depictions. And uh, Leo Africanus was purported to have converted to Christianity. It's sort of vague, his sort of uh, uh, religious beliefs. But there's this common thread that you'll see in medieval texts that uh, talk about, uh, you know, they sow scenes of the more giving up Islam converting to Christianity and suddenly uh, their skin whitens, their offspring stop being deformed. And uh, it, it, it gives this idea that, uh, you know, identity is fluid, it could be changing, and that at least in a pre-modern sense of human difference, religion acted as this way to demarcate difference, but it could also, you could also change that, right? Uh, depending on like because ultimately what is a religion it's whatever you believe it's not like any sort of something essential to you that you keep inside your body but that would begin to change uh so when you have an andalus over the years uh you know by the no in the north that's where like a lot of sort of proto-nationalist sentiment where it was uh you know taking a foot and you know projected sort of this uh, vision of a Christian Iberia and you know the eventual Reconquista are like arguably served as the principal linguistic vehicle for suppressing the indigenous nature of Andalusian Muslim cultural heritage in Iberia because at this point uh, people have been Muslims have been there for centuries you know so this uh, it's interesting that we keep sort of like that there are discourses that try to like impose this African essence on uh, what are now just Iberian Muslims uh, to show that like these people are ultimately foreign. They're not, uh, you know, of the like true Iberian stock and a lot of nationalist narratives sort of a linked uh, sort of proto Spanish Iberianness to pre like pre Islamic conquest Visigoth and try to create this like digestible narrative of like indigeneity um, like you know, sort of custodians of the land that uh, you, this, the, that Muslims just could never have claim to. Uh, so like, you know, uh, it enabled Christians in 13th century Castile uh, to dismiss as foreign the substantially mixed Andalusian Muslim uh, population to their south, as well as Castile's own, uh, you know, Muslims, and disregard the extent of social and cultural ties among Andalusis, um, including Muslims from Africa. Christian longing for a world of religious, cultural, ethnic, and political unity rather than diversity effectively interfered with and rewrote cultural history of the peninsula in accordance with the polity that they not only imagined for themselves, but also them constructed for their new religious and linguistic community that doesn't include Arabic, doesn't include Islam, you know. Uh, but then, the, you know, the big question is like, well, who, who's in Al-Andalus? Who are these people? Uh, and, you know, there's different groups there, uh, you know, there's different, different languages were being spoken, Arabic, Latin, Proto-Spanish, Amazigh dialects, uh, Hebrew, Landino, or Ladino, 
we're all being spoken. And, you know, of the, the Arabs who were there, they're not just from, uh, you know, Arab populations that came to settle in North Africa. There was also large populations from Yemen, large populations from Syria. And in the eventual exodus, you would see a lot of them going back to Syria, which, uh, you know, you can see that in sort of evidence of musical styles and architecture. Uh, but, you know, like, uh, uh, let me see, like, and there was a lot of movement, like during the Al-Murabitun, Al-Murabid dynasty, uh, Morocco engaged with several West African polities, <laughs> which brought West African slaves and freemen up to North Africa and in turn Iberia. Um, but I mean, the big sort of thing here is, uh, like I was talking about how middle medieval texts sort of talked about the conversioning, the conversion of Moors to, to uh, Christianity would like make, uh, you know, could make them like white, you know, while this seems as this sort of like, oh, okay, people can change their identity, they're not fixed, but it's also very fixing in the fact that such trans like transformations can like, while they can be like indicative of a somewhat fluid notion of identity, they can also be seen to tighten the association of particular skin color and bodily attributes with particular faiths or moral qualities, which is, I mean, it's important to understand this. This is like key to racial ideology that we see in like the later centuries. And it's like very key to like, you know, 19th century race science that we uh, uh, like always <laughs> deride. But I mean, it, you know, you look at, for example, like a very contemporary context uh, in far right circles in Greece, there was uh, this intense conversation and debate because when you had waves of Syrian uh, refugees coming into Greece, uh, the, the big question for these far right, some of these far right groups was like, okay, well, I mean, should we adv advocate for a hijab then? And uh, because one, that sort of goes along with our values as uh, Christians, as Greeks, uh, and it goes along with what we think as, as Greek heritage. But also, if we ban people wearing hijab, how will we know who's Muslim and who's not? <laughs> because the, the, the big, like, sort of uh, what's getting revealed in this, like, discourse is the fact that they know that, like, Syrians, Turks, uh, Greeks are not really racially different. So we need to find different ways to mark a difference in order to uh, uh, like perpetuate nationhood, like national identity. And the same sort of thing happened in Spain with the Reconquista. So, uh, you know, as, as uh, it says, such, like, such Spanish anxieties were provoked by the fact that Iberian Jews, Christians and Muslims were often not, not usually physically uh, physically distinguishable from one another. Hence, they needed to find a distinction that lay deeper inside under the sort of like epidermal layer, or I don't know, like a purity of blood or a purity of faith. So in 1480, the Inquisition formalized the correspondence between the two by proclaiming that religious faith was manifested in purity of blood. Thus, differences of faith indicated different interior essences, and faith was not a matter of individual choice. So in sort of defining and like reifying Spanish, uh, sort of like a Spanish political and national community, it's like turned to these sort of unseen essences that lay trapped within, you know, uh, I like, uh, Iberian Muslims and Jews to make sure that like there was no sort of way 
that one could be like become a Christian because everyone is imbued with a Muslim essence that they just can't change. Uh, like um, a, uh, you know, a Jewish essence that they can't change. Uh, and this is key because I mean, like while it might be different at different points in time for this particular sort of political context and sort of like nation building, it was very key in sort of legitimizing these relations of power vis-a-vis -vis Iberian Christians and like Muslims that and Jews who are fleeing or trying to stay in this new polity. Uh, but going, uh, and it's important to know the, the, the term blue blood, uh, which is an English term that denotes uh, a, like a class sort of designation actually comes from the Spanish where you had Iberian Christians talking about uh, their purity as Christians with uh, the word, I, I don't know how to pronounce it in Spanish, I don't speak Spanish, but like sangre azul, Blue blood. That's what the people were like, that's how it was referred to, like pureness of blood of like Iberian Christian stock. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting how that transforms and uh, gets reinterpreted in different like contexts. But, uh, you know, now the sort of big elephant in the room is Othello. You know, El Othello is uh, probably the most famous Moor <laughs> that uh, the Western world uh, sort of creates and that other parts of the world engage with. And it, you know, the very famous poem from William Shakespeare is actually said to be uh, inspired by Abdul Wahid bin Masood bin Muhammad Anun. He was this Moroccan ambassador to Queen Elizabeth I. And uh, you know, he was there to promote the Anglo-Moroccan alliance. But uh, it's often said that uh, like by different scholars that this, this man in this presence might've had a, uh, influence on uh, Shakespeare. And, you know, as, as it said, uh, you know, again, Othello, like Renaissance representations of the Moor were, again, vague, varied, inconsistent, and contradictory, as critics have established. Uh, the term Moor refers to, you know, dark-skinned people in general, but used interchangeably with, like, some sort of inner, like, faith essence. But it could also be, like, used to uh, talk about ambiguous groups as African, Ethiopian, and even Indian. You know, uh, you know the Moors of Ceylon in Sri Lanka. That was a group of people that uh, were called Moors. And in the English context, it's interesting because you hear these, like, you hear talk about the figure of the Tawny Moor or the Black Moor, which gives the ones the sense that the Moor itself isn't really a racial designation, but by adding this uh, uh, adjective, it makes that adjective tawny or blacka uh, gives the racial des des designation, right? But that's not necessarily true as I'll show with a couple, uh, you know, dictionary definitions. But then, you know, we get to uh, uh, 19th century depictions of the Moors. And it's by this time that the Moors become really just uh, black in a lot of uh, different European renderings. And it's these works that if you Google, uh, if you Google the Moors, at least in English Google, you'll, this is what you're going to get. Uh, and I mean, it's funny. I mean, you just look at this and then like, again, this is like coming out straight out of like Orientalism, uh, again, like everything Edward Said sort of described. But I mean, just look at like the tiger, like the Sultan with the tiger. Like, obviously there's no tiger in Iberia. There's no tiger. There's no tigers native to North Africa. We used to have lions, but they uh, unfortunately went extinct. But uh you know, it, it's, it's just interesting. I mean, if you uh, keep going, I mean, you know, 
in Alhambra, the Eastern Coffee House, uh, you know, like, it's, uh, you know, once again, you know, the color black became associated with spiritual darkness, cultural otherness. Uh, but then when we get to definitions themselves, it's, you know, it sort of goes against this idea of the Tawny Moor and the Black Amor, because if you look at all these different definitions uh, in the 18th century uh, and 19th century, it's like, it seems pretty clear what Amor meant <laughs> to uh, at least the, the, the uh, writers of these different dictionaries, right? Uh, but... This brings me to sort of my uh, big idea that I want to uh, like get across that. Uh, so I'll start with sort of a, like a mini summary. Since Muslim invasions of Spain in uh, 711 CE, the figure of the Moor remained an ambivalent figure within Western imagination. The term Moor or Maori was originally used to designate people hailing from the region of Mauritania, an ancient Roman province that included northern Algeria and Morocco. Throughout the centuries, though, the word was quite protein, coming to refer to a wide variety of people who fell somewhere in the intersection of being Muslim, dark-skinned, and lacking an imagined European essence. Thus, the Moor for many Europeans was a discursive figure composed of stories, anecdotes, metaphors, and images, which constructed myriad relationships between the European and their perceived other. In other words, the Moor was a floating signifier, a figure oscillating between many times conflicting discourses. Furthermore, the power of the word can be found in its very ambiguity. As the Moor was not a particular figure fixed to a certain historical context, the word allowed for differing European discourses that sought to reformulate understandings of the European self as well as legitimizing relations of power. Whether it was the proto-nationalist discourses of Iberian Christians in Muslim Spain or the theatrical drama of Shakespeare's Othello, the more became part of a relational process that helped forge the moral, cultural, and biological superiority of the European Christian as antithetical to the Muslim Moor, or the Moorish Muslim. Uh, these sorts of discourses would go on to provide the foundation and continue to transform amidst the development of expansionist mercantile capitalism and formal European modes of knowledge production on the East, otherwise Orientalism. And you know, uh, the big figure that I'm sort of taking this from is uh, oh, sorry, is uh, Stuart Hall. Uh, he was a cultural the theorist in the UK. And, uh, you know, in sort of talk, he, he took this linguistic term of the, uh, the floating signifier and he provided it within his framework of race. So um, as Ray Adolf Reed Jr. would define race, is like a taxonomy of a script of difference that is an ideology that constructs populations as groups and sorts them into hierarchies of capacity, civic work, and desert based on natural or essential like characteristics attributed to them. So race is one of those constructed classifications that aim to legitimize like forging existing hierarchies or exist like forging like new social hierarchies or existing social hierarchies. Furthermore, it reinforces hierarchies of wealth, power, privilege, and most importantly, division of labor. But uh, it, 
as Stuart Hall put it, it's a floating signifier. It's a discursive construct that is a subject to redefinition in different cultures and contexts. As Franz Fanon in Black Skin, White Masks, uh, like elaborated, you know, it, it, he described race, is, it's not simply composed of one's like physical features, one's epidermis, rather it is the schema of the stories, the anecdotes, metaphors, images that lie trapped under the epidermal layer, constructing the relationship between the physical body and its social and cultural space. So when he talks about this moment where he has on the bus, where like uh, this young white boy is just like, Maman, uh, there's a black man. He's fixed, not just like this, like, oh, I see this human who looks physically different from me, but like the, all the associations, all like the sort of discourses that aimed to uh, fix and uh, create this figure, that's like what Fanon is talking about. You know, and it's not important, it, it, what's important here is not like, I'm not just saying, oh, race isn't real. Uh, I mean, it is a social contract, but like it's, we shouldn't say race is, isn't real, therefore we should disregard it. I mean, no, phenotypical differences do exist in the world, but what matters are the systems of thought and language we use to make sense of this difference. And unfortunately, you know, for the past few centuries, the dominant systems of thought hailed from European institutions that aim to quantitatively prove European superiority over the rest of humanity. And uh, with that, I mean, I wanna turn to two sort of more contemporary examples, not contemporary, but like more recent examples of this that, do, that uh, aren't coming from Europe, actually. So people that aren't really interacting, had, didn't even have some sort of interaction with the more. And the, it was important, like most of Europe didn't have an interaction either. I mean, like Spain, yes. <laughs> a lot of other like uh, Europeans didn't like interact with what we would call a more. Uh, and the first is the Moorish Science Temple of America. Uh, this was a group that came uh, in the 1920s. Uh, its base was in Chicago. And they were a national and religious organization founded by Noble Juali. And he, it, it, their whole sort of doctrine was the belief that Black Americans were in fact the descendants of uh, the, the Moorish Empire. And through the ravages and violence of the institution of slavery, lost their cultural values and ultimate, uh, you know, sense of identity. And so by, uh, you know, they, there was this sort of like pseudo-Islamic text that they called it a Quran, but it was actually like a, a compilation of different, like actual, like uh, different Bible uh, sort of iterations with some like Quranic verses. But... Uh, you know, it, the big thing here is like that the doctrine was intended to provide black Americans with a sense of an identity in the world and promote civic involvement. So if you hear like the stuff he's talking about, he's talking about, hey, we need to open businesses. We need to uh, be like participating in local politics. We need to uh, respect law and order. And he attributed all these sort of virtues of being like an upstanding right upright citizen to the values of the more it didn't matter like whatever Europeans said of the more it's the fact that this more a discursive figure came to represent what he thought were uh you know the modern sort of values that black americans needed to uh, like reclaim in order to uh make claims to American political like uh, citizenship and modernity. You have this uh, movie in the 1960s, and uh, <laughs> if you, it's called El Cid. It's ta it's talking about like again more like Muslim conquests, uh, and 
you know, this guy right here, he's basically a fanatic. Like, if just for a small paraphrasing, he's like, the prophet has commanded us to rule the world, wherein all your land is in, of Spain is the glory of Allah. Uh, like, you know, burn your books, make warriors of your poets, let your doctors invent new po poisons uh, for our arrows. Uh, I will sweep up from Africa and the empire of Allah, the true God will spread first across Spain, then across Europe, and then the whole world, you know? And this sort of depiction is really reflecting, uh, you know, one cold, like sort of Cold War era, but also like renderings of like Muslims as like this sort of civilizational uh, antagonist to the West that we come to like be very familiar with, uh, you know, in sort of like a post 9-11 world. Um, and, but it's not being informed by uh, the particular discourses coming out of Europe because the more like because of the ambiguities because of the uh like conflicting discourses the com like and that's where like I said that's where its power comes from I mean it's important to know that like you know I'm, I'm actually reading this book called uh, Racecraft and it's talking about the like American sort of context but the big sort of argument it's like uh putting out is like, we need to stop talking about race in terms of like uh, <laughs> these ontological sort of things that exist, but also like as something that comes as a result of racism. Race is like inscribed and informed by different sort of material practices and cultural attitudes uh, that, you know, so racism creates race. And like, while we can, we can go for days talking about how racism is a very irrational sort of way to think about it, the, about the world yeah it's illogical it doesn't it's not supposed to make sense and i think my issue when i first did this presentation was like trying to make sense of it uh that's like exactly like where the power comes from but it's important to know that just because it doesn't make sense it's not log logical doesn't mean it has a, like it doesn't have a rationality you know like for something like witchcraft for example like we can point towards a lot of things that aren't logical about like witchcraft but there is a rationality that creates a certain sort of life world for people that operate within it and like uh, operate within the rules set by like you know race <laughs> like which like with like magic witchcraft but also i think it's a very sort of uh interesting comparison but uh in terms of uh <laughs> like um what more is there to say uh I hope I, uh, I, I, my rambling wasn't too confusing. Um, you know, I, I, again, I mean, anyone, you could just go to Wikipedia and be like, oh, you know, the Moors were a racially like, diverse group of people that came from West Africa, the, like the Middle East and North Africa that met, like invaded Spain. But like, while that's true, uh, it doesn't really get at the issue of how people relate to that term and the fact that none of these people were calling each other Moors, you know, like I'm not, and I'm not going to go as far as to, to be like, no, they were calling themselves Arabs or Amazigh. No, they, I don't think they were necessarily calling themselves that either uh, because all this stuff is fluid and like informed by different like contexts. But uh, it's important to know that this, the figure of the Moor is this uh, figure that is like constant, like subject to constant reconstruction based on different contexts uh, for like you know promoting different like sort of agendas but uh so first of all amazing amazing job uh huge uh, thanks okay we're gonna we're three minutes to the hour and so i understand if people have to drop off 
But I think there is appetite for some more questions. Mahdi, do you have about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes to stay on the call? Yeah, of course, of course. Okay, cool. So let's, let's open it up. If anybody has to drop off, I understand. But um, let's start with Karim. And since we don't have that much time, if you can just limit it to one question each person, that would be great. I think in a way you answered the question. I, I was asking more about how the, the, um, uh, the Arabs viewed themselves rather than how they were viewed or identified as Moors. Uh, but in a way, I, I understood later on that it was specifically about the term more and what it means. So in a way, l let me change the question a bit. Is it, um, wh why do you think, Mahdi, um, it matters to identify that word or to try to define it, even though you specifically mentioned that the word uh, sort of evolves with time towards the end of the presentation? Um, with certain political connotations or, or, or whatever it means. But for, for example, does it matter for, for black South Africans today to try and research the word kafir or a word that was assigned in a time of otherness or assigned, like, like why does this question um, matter to, to us as Arabs today or as people associated with the, the Middle East? So thank you very much. I think sort of the big thing we just like have to understand is that like the sort of categories that we understand ourselves to be are not like essential things that have existed <laughs> for all of time, you know? So uh, we, we need to understand that like any sort of identity is fluid. It is changing in different like political contexts and like you know i i don't know in my sort of like uh, <laughs> uh sort of background i mean we can talk about uh you know amazir in indigeneity we can talk about uh, sort of trying to reclaim some sort of authentic past that was erased but ultimately that uh one that's like impossible <laughs> to like to to like just sort of like rewrite history to say that like certain things didn't happen that we can truly reclaim something but also talk about how like ultimately like what we know as something like Amazir is is informed by like the interaction with Arabs I mean you don't like pe people uh, like in antiquity weren't talking themselves you know like uh, what we would now call like an Amazir tribe in Libya and Morocco weren't like talking about themselves in some sort of like uh you know, political unity, but now they do. And why is that? Why, uh, uh, like, why is there this certain transformation? And we, I think we just need to understand how, uh, like, sort of political economy, but relations of power factor into how people identify. And, like, oftentimes it's not this sort of, like, quest for, like, finding meaning, but it's also very pragmatic that, like, people do in order just to, like, get material things like sort of and goals um thanks ahmed um karim if you're ready you can go ahead and ask your question hello everybody uh, thanks Mehdi, for your great uh, presentation I, I really enjoyed it uh, a lot of respect for all the knowledge you were able to stitch stitch together in a yeah very nice story um my question was is there a connection between the name moors and uh, el moravidin I, that's something I honestly don't know. I mean, I, 
I don't know if any of the, the Moroccans in the chat could help me out with this one. Uh, but I mean, I know in Morabitun, I don't know how that actually figures into, you know, the Latin entomology of this word. And I mean, if that has anything to do with like, because I mean, Morabitun has a very different like sort of context and meaning in Arabic. Um, but I mean, I, 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 I don't even know like what is the uh, sort of origins of the English word Morocco. Uh, because I mean, obviously in Arabic, it's a very different, like a Maghrib is like, that's like a geographical like sort of category talking about our proximity to uh, who the Arabian Peninsula. But uh, I, I really, I, I couldn't tell you how that they fit in. And in terms of, uh, yeah, sort of the entomology of like Morocco, like Maraksh. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, like, ultimately, like, I know, like, like, no, different, like, Amazir dialects have something to do with it, but it's just something I'm not really familiar with. Uh, Mahdi, really quick question. You can try to answer in, like, a minute or two, just because I wanted to keep it moving. But did you get a sense of how the Umayyads from, like, from Iraq and Syria uh, were writing about the quote-unquote Moors in Arabic? Did you, do you have a sense of what the terminology like really looks like from historians and sort of written word at the time? No, that's a good question. I mean, like from like the in the weed sort of history, I mean, you know, you have this like Umayyad sort of a polity that is established in Al-Andalus after the invasions. That was the sort yeah. of like alternative polity. Uh, but in terms of how people were relating to like how people in the Arab East were talking about it, I mean, other than just sort of like, you know, flowery language of like, you know, this sort of lot, like lost paradise or the like literal paradise on earth. I don't know how people were uh, talking about like Arabic speakers, uh, Amazigh speakers, because I mean, we could go in, like, that's a whole nother sort of can of worms of what Arabs were like, how they were referring to uh, yeah. like indigenous North Africans, right? Uh, at that time, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you know anything. I, I don't know, but thanks. Um, okay, Usman and then Lamia, Sabrina, uh, Mace, and then Alia will be our last one. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Hi, thank you, Matthew. That was a great talk. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, and maybe you can reflect a little bit more on the racial politics of Shakespeare, because the thing with Othello is that I always found him a bit of a problematic character in that he's meant to be the sympathetic character, the one that in liberal circles has said, oh, we've got this Othello, he's a good guy, but then he ends up murdering uh, Desdemona, so he's not the best positive uh, representation. But what was always interesting me about it, and this is where my question is, is the figure of Iago himself. So I found it interesting that he uses the name Iago because, of course, who is Iago, the patron saint of which country? It's Spain. So I'm sort of wondering what those sort of racial politics is in like that kind of millennial that um, Shakespeare is sort of getting at there and what the significance of that is. Oh, these are all, yeah, these are all really good questions. Uh, I mean, like, 
it, it's important to note that, like, again, like a lot of people in England are not interacting with these so-called Moors. Uh, I mean, at this point, yeah, Moors are sort of understood to be uh, these people or remnants of uh, people that were in Muslim Spain. Uh, but, I, you know, there's this key, I don't know if I can find it here. Key moment, like when uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, trying to find the excerpt because it was really interesting. Basically, she called for the expulsion of all uh, Moors from <laughs> England at that point. Uh, and it's, okay, I found it, I found it. Uh, hence when uh, Elizabeth I of England tried to expel great numbers of Negroes and Black Moors from her realm, authorizing a slave trader to take possession of them, she also called them infidels, having no understanding of Christ or his gospel, who had crept into her realm from Spain, implying they were Spanish Muslims. Uh, but, you know, I mean, these people would not have necessarily been dark-skinned, uh, and uh, Elizabeth's terminology appears contradictory and hard to interpret unless we uh, keep in mind the overlaps between the discourse of faith and the discourse of like the body. Uh, and you know this like, gen like this translates into a whole like you know discussion on like the history of English slavery and its contradictions and overlaps. But uh, in terms of exactly what uh, you know Shakespeare was doing, I mean there is this like figure of like. Uh, you know, the noble more, like the tragic more that I think is embodied with Othello, uh, that is like, you know, worthy, like, like has the ability to be redeemed in some sort of way, whether that is uh, through accepting Christianity or, you know, accepting whatever we want to call uh, European values. I mean, I know like, and it's not like, there, there are instances of more as, as very like revered folks, like uh, I think St. Maurice, uh, he's a, a Christian saint who is like a black man who is referred to as a Moor. Uh, so, I mean, there were different avenues like that people had for the Moor as, uh, you know, this redeemable figure. But uh, I mean, even like important figures like St. Augustine, or, like a North African Amazigh, <laughs> like that people just don't know about. That's another great presentation someone should do. So thanks so much. Really, really great job. If you want to just switch the slide real quick to your contact information so people know how to find you. Yeah. Um, in the chat, I'm listing a one question feedback form, um, which I'd really appreciate if people can fill, take one second just to see if we're doing a good job and how we should be changing. Um, okay, I will put the form one last time as a final plug. Uh, please give us feedback and have a good afternoon, evening, morning, wherever you are. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.